Mr. Adam, we wouldn't consider I-I-I-I and ooh-ooh inspired, right? <laughs> okay. Just making sure. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. And as you find your place there, as you've uh, had it read to you earlier by our brother Kevin, I want to ask you to go ahead and also put your bookmark or a pen or something in Matthew chapter 19, because um, we're going to look at marriage today as we've been looking. You've heard the phrase marriage, so-and-so's marriage is on the rocks. What exactly does that mean? I mean, I know that it means that a marriage is in distress, but what does it mean to be on the rocks? I tried to research and find out the answer to that. I I couldn't really come up with anything logical. Um, And so I, I began to just kind of imagine in my mind that uh, potentially that might mean that like a seaworthy vessel that is cast up upon uh, shallow rocks in the ocean or a sea, they are in a moment or a, a situation of distress. And we could then say that things that are on the rocks, particularly marriages, would be in great distress because the hidden dangers below are... Uh, creating a threat to to destroy or dismember um, the marriage itself. And of course, marriages in our country are on the rocks for sure in this day and, and time, being smashed apart by the pressures of family, finances, and even their faith. Because statistics on divorce are not much different than uh, between Christians and non-Christians, we need to ask the questions today, why are marriages so rocky? Doug Wilson, in a quote in uh, a book on his uh, theology of marriage, writes this. He says, a short walk through the marriage and family section of the local Christian bookstore easily demonstrates that modern Christians have a tremendous interest In the subject of marriage and family. But this booming marriage business with books and conferences and seminars and marriage counseling is really a sign of disease and not health. In a very real sense, our interest is morbid, almost pathological. He says we are like terminal cancer patients fervently researching alternative treatments, hoping against hope that something can be done desperate for happiness in our relationships and discontent with what God has given us, we are imploring the experts to show us the way out. Church, I think that in our day and time, as we have gathered with us here, uh, many young people who are looking into the horizon of the culture and seeing marriage as a running joke among their friends and family, I'm thankful to have a faithful church that loves God's Word and is desperate for these young people and ourselves as adults to have our feet grounded upon a true biblical definition of marriage because they are in danger. They are in danger of not taking marriage seriously, thinking it is a a thing to cast away at the moment's notice, at the slightest conflict, And we have to reiterate over and over again with the foundation of Christ and His Word how important biblical marriage is and the way that it is a glory to God. And so I'm very thankful in our study of 1 Corinthians that Paul deals very uh, with, with great application about marriage. 
We've really been dealing with this topic now since chapter 5, when Paul first introduced the sexual immorality in a marriage in the church in Corinth. And now, all the way in chapter 7, for us, many months later, we are still dealing with the responsibility and the understanding of biblical marriage. The, the people in Corinth had a, a, a great um, misunderstanding about marriage. We've looked at how uh, because of such a debased and sinful culture, the Corinthian believers were trying to autocorrect the steering wheel of marriage and promote abstinence among the people so that they would not be like the culture. And in promoting abstinence even among God's people, Paul had to call them out and say, no, that is not what God has commanded us to do as God's people. We are called to enjoy the intimacy that He has given us. It's one of the very hallmarks or foundations of a biblical marriage. And so Paul is going to now continue very specifically to deal with the realities of biblical marriage, the truth of biblical marriage in the context of situations that have arisen in the Corinthian church. In verses 10 and 11... Well, let's back up. In chapter 7, from the very beginning... We've talked about the relationship and the responsibility of husbands to have healthy, intimate lives with their wives. Last week, we looked at the opposite. We looked at as one is a gift of God, so something else is a gift of God. That second thing that's the gift of God is the gift of celibacy, where God has selected and called out certain people to live lives of singleness and celibacy so they might serve and glorify God, much like the Apostle Paul. But now in verses 10 down through the rest of this chapter, we will return to different scenarios of marriage. And all trying to focus on what is God's design and purpose and glory in the relationship between a husband and a wife. Verses 10 and 11 deal particularly with two married people who, are, who have entered into a marriage relationship. Two verses, 10 and 11. Paul says, To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Notice in verse 12, To the rest, I say, not I, uh, I say, not the Lord. And he goes on to address other issues that we will look at next week. So our, our purpose and focus today is 10 and 11 and trying to understand God's command to married believers. Where God has brought us together in a marriage relationship as both husband and wife yoked not unequally, but equally together founded in a relationship with Christ. This goes to uh, be the very foundation of, of what we want to talk about today, that the marriage relationship between a husband and wife is so foundational because it reflects, as Adam read at the beginning of our service, it reflects the work of Christ and His calling of His people, the church, to Himself. That is the picture of marriage. 
Young people, it's not about love. It's not about our affections. It's not about our feelings and our emotions. It's about the the way in which God draws and brings together believers in such a way, not to just love each other and not just have affections for each other, but who want to honor and obey the Lord Jesus Christ and reflect His glory and what He's done. If you love Jesus, your ultimate purpose in life is not to get married and have kids. Your ultimate purpose is to reflect Jesus. And to honor Him in all things. And the best way you can do that is in a relationship with a husband and a wife. Reflecting the bride and the groom coming together in holiness. The sacrifice and the joy and the satisfaction between a man and a woman. This is why throughout the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament... We see the image of marriage as His people in relationship with God Almighty. All through the Scriptures, the Lord has determined to use the marriage relationship as the very picture of Him and His people. We see and understand that the Lord was the husband of Israel. When Israel lusted after pagan gods and idols and and laid their offerings at the feet of pagan worship, they were called spiritual adulterers. They were adulterers because they had committed a spiritual treason against not just their Lord, but against their groom. In the New Testament, Jesus gives parables of the Messiah being like the bridegroom coming for His bride on the wedding day. And those attendants in the bridal party were not ready for His return. Paul solidifies that the marriage imagery in Ephesians chapter 5 reflects the relationship between a sacrificial Lord and His church whom He makes holy. And finally, in Revelation, the great gathering of the church to Christ is depicted this way in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 through 9. John writes, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has been herself ready, or has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. Bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Friend, in everything as believers in Jesus Christ, we must understand that our marriages, although fallible, are to reflect the glory of Christ and His work in this world as Savior and Lord. That He would cast His love upon unlovable people and sacrificially give of Himself unconditionally, not based upon merit, but by His grace and His love. So our marriages are not uh, perfect pictures of the Gospel, but they are nonetheless used as a reflection of the glory of Christ for the world to see. It's interesting that even unbelievers can reflect marriage fidelity and not even know that they are participating in the very demonstration of God as a faithful God. Because marriage 
And our relationship to marriage as husband and wife is called to be a marriage of faithfulness and permanence. And as believers, when we practice such permanence and we practice such faithfulness to one another, we're reflecting the God which we worship. But even unbelievers live faithfully in marriage as a creation gift from God even to the lost. And in their faithfulness, even though they don't want to do it, they are reflecting their Lord and His faithfulness. And so today I want us to look at these two passages that I've mentioned. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, and Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And as we do, we're going to look at what does Paul say about marriage and what does Jesus say about marriage. Paul is giving this instruction, as I've said, to the believers in Corinth because they are fighting the culture and the culture is moving them out of sync with what God desires for marriage. They are trying to, uh, to deal with it in their way and they've written Paul letters and Paul is responding to them in, with biblical instruction. They are fighting the temptations as much as we fight the temptations today to capitulate to the culture before us, to do what seems right in their eyes and not what seems right in the eyes of the Lord. So we have to be informed as much as they have to be informed. What does God require of marriage between a husband and a wife in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ in both of them? And the answer is, number one, permanence. Permanence. God's design for marriage is it is supposed to be permanent. Permanence reflects the faithfulness of God. God is a faithful and unchanging God. He never fails us. We have His good promises that we can rely on. And we can hope in His promises throughout our lives as we are promised that He will never leave us nor forsake us. That He will supply our every need. He gives us the power of His Spirit within us so that we can even be called to faithfulness and trust that His power will help us in our faithfulness and obedience. Why? So that we might reflect His character. So Paul gives this instruction in chapter 7 verse 10. He says, To the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, and that the end of verse 11, and the husband should not leave or divorce his wife. Now the subject matter here is 100% about divorce. When he uses two different Greek words in these passages, he is speaking every in every instance about divorce. He wants the people in the church in Corinth who are both believers, who are contemplating divorce for the very reasons that I've already stated. Some people had considered abstinence as the better way, the holier way the better spiritual path for them as believers because sexual immorality was so rampant. And then they were willing to take that another step farther and just say, well, what about divorce in general? What about divorce in general? We talked about the different aspects of of marriages in this culture. 
we talked about how some people had come into the Corinthian church uh, possibly as a part of slave marriages. Slave marriages. In that culture, two people could be married as slaves, and at any moment the master could remove one of those two spouses and place them into another marriage in a different place and time. And so by all means, there are believers in these contexts going, well, what do I do about marriage then? If, if my master has literally, if my, if my, if my, my boss has literally taken away my bride and sent her somewhere else or sold her off, am I still married? What do I do about this? And so the aspect of divorce was on the forefront of people's minds in many different scenarios. And what is Paul's What is his command to the people? Well, notice he says, not I, but the Lord. And it's important for us to address this because in chapter 7, verse 12, he will say, not the Lord, but I say. And so many people get all up in arms about that. It's like, oh, is Paul speaking outside of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Is he speaking outside of the authoritative, inerrant Word of God? And the answer to that is always no. He's not doing that. What he means in verse 10, not I but the Lord, is he's literally addressing things that Jesus had already said. And in chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 7 verse 12, he will be addressing things that are still inspired, that are still commanded to you as believers, but the Lord never said. Because Jesus didn't say everything. And yet by the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through men that God had deemed worthy to speak, he, he, he moved in such a way to give us the inspiration of the Word of God that is without error in every way. And therefore we must adhere to it and live in obedience toward it. And so here in verse 10... Paul's message is clear. The wife and the husband should never seek divorce from another believing spouse. Under no circumstances should a believing wife leave her husband who is a believer or vice versa. I would go so far as to say there is no reason for both who are living in Christ's likeness toward one another reflecting the holiness of God in marriage, to ever consider divorce. Paul is addressing this issue between Christians in Corinth, firstly and chiefly, because this is the starting point, this is the launching pad. He will deal with those who are married to unbelievers, but as far as believers are concerned... Folks, it should be out of the question that two people who follow Christ would consider a divorce. Now, I know that some of you in here today are divorced. And as you reflect back on those relationships, what you thought of as your spouse, as a believer, you probably understand now that they really weren't. And it's a whole other situation that Paul will deal with next week. But let this be a warning to our our young people here today who are so eager and so ready because of all the the Disney Plus shows and the Hallmark Channel and all these lovey-dovey rom-coms that show you all the beauties of marriage 
And they paint for you this tapestry that is poisonous and deadly to you because you have no clear understanding outside of a true biblical marriage that is modeled for you in your home and in your church can you really understand. So you need to be careful. You need to be careful because it's so easy for you to fall into a relationship with someone and you will be unequally yoked. Because you haven't done your homework and you haven't done your due diligence to understand that these people truly love Jesus. And and, and as a disclaimer, we have all been deceived in that way. We've all been deceived. In some form or fashion, we have seen people love Jesus and we have seen people walk with Jesus only to see those people walk away. So we need to have grace. But my question to my daughters and to your daughters and sons is don't rush it. Why why rush into it? Why not make every ample, responsible choice and have with wise decision and wise counsel surrounding you to make sure because of the, 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 um, the unholiness of divorce among believers in Jesus Christ, make sure that you are in love and are seeking to marry a, a person of the opposite sex that is overwhelmingly in love with Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because Paul's command was Malachi's command. It was Moses' command. It was Jesus' command that God hates divorce. He hates it. And he hates it because it goes against his good design. He hates it because it does not reflect the faithfulness and the permanence of his own character when two believers who love Jesus move away from what he has bonded together in the covenant of marriage. So we ask these questions. Well, pastor, wait a minute. What if my husband is abusive? What if my husband is addicted to pornography? What if my wife is lazy and neglects her duties as a wife? What if my wife becomes emotionally attached and has an affair with another man? What about these things? Well, all these particular scenarios between believers are issues of the church. They are spiritual discipline issues. So they should never end in divorce. They should end in Paul's second point and foundation of marriage, and that is reconciliation. Paul's point is this in chapter 7, verse 10. I give this instruction. The wife should not divorce her husband. And in verse 11, and the husband should not divorce his wife. But, he says, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Paul is interested in reconciliation. Now, I'll tell you right now that I don't think that Paul is is dealing at all with remarriage here. That's not an issue that's on his mind. 
And the reason it's not an issue on his mind is because the people that he is answering the question to in chapter 7, they're not interested in remarriage. Most of them want to stay single or be divorced and remain that way because celibacy was the way in which they were trying to go. So remarriage was not on his thought process in this passage. What he's saying is, for the woman, which is interesting by the way, that that Paul would address the woman first in this passage. It's interesting and makes you wonder and it makes commentators and scholars think that Paul is literally dealing with a particular situation in Corinth where a woman was wanting to divorce her believing husband as a believing wife. Which is why he addresses the woman first in this passage, which was very uncommon. But the point that Paul is making is that she would remain unmarried. Why? For the reconciliation to happen. If there was a chance, if there was a hope, if there was a goal of any separation or divorce, it would be that the wife and the husband would remain unmarried for the sake of reconciliation. Why? Because reconciliation should always be the goal of conflicts in marriage. Not divorce. Not the easy way out, church. Instead, the relationship should seek reconciliation. That she should be reconciled to her husband, as Paul writes. Sounds pretty personal, if you ask me. So if a believer is seeking a divorce because he or she has lost that loving feeling, or if she's, or, or is seeking a relationship with someone else, then that believer is in sin, and it's not an issue of divorce, it's an issue of church discipline among God's people. Just as much as in chapter 5, when the man was sleeping with his mother-in-law, it was an issue of church discipline that the church should have held, uh, handled and dealt with, but instead they ignored the sin. And so many times in our culture today, the church is ignoring the sin of divorce. It's, it is church. When we have neglected the, the permanency of marriage and we have said that it, it doesn't matter when two believers are entering into a, a bond of marriage and they are Christ-like and they seek all of a sudden to be disconnected and divorced... Church, I'm telling you, they are not walking with Christ. Because Christ desires for them to be married. And therefore, the church should step in. And the church should help that brother and that sister resolve whatever conflicts have arisen. But unfortunately, this isn't what happens. And when we see that, we don't see a reflection of Christ in the church. We see a reflection of ungodly relationships in the world. Ungodly, unbelieving marriages where resentment wins the day in so many relationships. And that resentment and bitterness leads to the erosion of love and fidelity until that marriage continually declines until it finally is dissolved. Marriages between unbelievers don't forgive, they don't reconcile, they sweep problems under the rug, and every unresolved conflict for them is like walking around with small shards of glass in your shoes. One or two is bearable, but eventually you've had enough. 
but as people who follow Christ, who desire to live for Him, understand a key doctrine, and that is grace and reconciliation. The grace of reconciliation is that we do not belong or deserve to be uh, united in love and mercy with our God. The Bible tells us He chose us before the foundation of the world, not because of us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. John tells us in John, we, we just memorize this, it's not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but of God. And therefore, because of the forgiveness and the reconciliation that's demonstrated in Christ saving us, then we as believers, as husbands and wives who love Jesus Christ, should by all means understand and practice reconciliation and peace. There should be forgiveness. There should be self-denial. There should be serving the needs of others over ourselves, honoring and respecting those before we demand it of us. And if there's not, the church intervenes and applies God's truth and principles. And if the Holy Spirit is present in both husband and wife, the Word of God will so move and transform them. Or as Matthew 18 says, it will reveal the reality that they are not truly believers in Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul will deal with that in verses 12 through 16. What it means to be married to an unbeliever. So should divorce be considered between two people who follow Jesus Christ? My answer and Paul's answer is no. And in the same way, Jesus' answer was no. So turn with Matthew chapter 19. Let's look at verses 3 through 9. Matthew 19 Verses 3 through 9. We already looked at these passages last week when we looked at the issue of celibacy. And, and, and in that moment, we looked at verses 10 down to 12. We will go before those passages as the Pharisees come to Jesus testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, and they said to him, Well, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it, was not, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. This passage is so important for our understanding of marriage, and the context is equally important for you to understand. These Pharisees came to Jesus asking about marriage, and it's important that as we look at God's Word, we always pay attention to every word. And it is very important here in this passage. 
Paul's, or excuse me, the Pharisees ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? That sounds odd, right? Well, the reason that sounds odd is because there were two schools of thought in Jesus' day in the religion or the religious schools of the, Shem, uh, of the Hillel and the Shammai. The Shammai were the conservative Jews of that day. And they were interpreters of the law of God. And they looked back into Deuteronomy chapter 24, which where Moses talked about certificates of divorce that could be given to those women when there was indecency found in them. Okay? Now, a certificate of divorce is important because for a woman to not receive a certificate of divorce, a final stamp of, of, of approval or a stamp of certification that this woman has been officially divorced, if she did not have that as a Jewish woman, then that man at any point in time could leave his wife and then come back to her and demand that they be back together because she is not officially divorced from him. And a certificate of divorce was an opportunity for that woman to be provided for by the community or ultimately in another marriage. Without a certificate of divorce, the woman could literally be without any type of provision or care. It's even assumed that because a woman might not have that certificate of divorce, even her family would not have provided for her. Because they were, that woman was now the responsibility of that man. Well, in Jesus' day, the Shammai and the Hillel, these two schools of thought, were very much the, the opposite views uh, of marriage. The Shammai were very conservative. And they would say that a, a certificate of divorce was required when there was indecency. And they defined indecency as sexual immorality or in our topic that we've been talking about, pornea. Okay? So the Shammai was, yes, you can grant a certificate of divorce if there's indecency found in the woman, or excuse me, in the man, and therefore you can send her off and there could be a certificate of divorce and, and therefore she can be provided for. But the Shammai demanded that that certificate uh, be required if there was indecency or as we would say, adultery. The Hillel were the liberal Jews. And they said and interpreted, you know, it's always about our interpretation. They said that any indecency would allow such of a divorce. Any indecency. If she burns the casserole, that's indecent to me. If she puts on a few pounds, if she disciplines my children the wrong way, whatever that might be. And so in Jesus' day... The Pharisees are literally speaking in their question the very viewpoint of the Hillel side of this argument. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And notice the wisdom of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not getting into your argument. I'm not even going to answer such a foolish question. Let's just take it back to what the Word of God says. 
And here he defines for us the same thing that Paul is defining for us in just a different way. He's showing us how God designed and has not changed from his good purposes in marriage. He goes back. For a man, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus wants to identify these foundational elements of marriage. Number one, we could say differing genders. Differing genders. Jesus reminds the Pharisees that in the book of Moses, or the books of Moses, it was, it was uh, ordained and promised that marriage was between a man and a woman only. The idea of immorality included various forms of incest and homosexuality. Therefore, the very foundation, the blueprint of marriage has never been and will never be between a man and a man and a, or a woman and a woman. It goes against the way in which God created. And you and I are going to have to fight those battles until our dying day. That is not going to change. And as time moves on, it will be a, it'll be a tougher road. And I promise you that the foundation of the reality of your conversion to Christ will be revealed as you stand upon things like this in this culture. Because if you run from that, if you try to rationalize that, all you will be doing is revealing your lostness and not your true salvation in Christ and your trust in His Word alone. I.e. Andy Stanley of Atlanta. I'll let you look that up yourself. There are pastors all over that are capitulating to the culture. They're trying to go the easy road. They're not standing upon what God designed, which is differing genders between a man and a woman or a woman and a man in the bond of marriage. But not just differing genders, distinctly separate people becoming permanently united in holy matrimony in the covenant of marriage. This process is which God makes marriage unique. It's a marriage bond. And that bond begins, parents, listen to me please, that begins with the cutting of ties with your children. I cannot tell you how many marriage counseling situations that Adam and I have to deal with where we have to literally talk about and refer to interfering parents in their relationships with their husband, or excuse me, with their children, interfering with spouses and taking sides, it is an unnecessary conflict. It is not your job to pay for or solve the problems of your child and their spouse when they become married. Let them face those moments of maturity by God's grace. Let them trust in Him and not in you. God designed these current or future marriages of your children to be free from your interference. Give them wisdom when it's asked. But do it in such a way that you have a mercy and a grace for the struggling that is necessary in early marriages. Let them face the financial struggles, the relational conflict, the need for personal forgiveness. 
You don't need to solve their problems. God commanded newly couples to leave their father and mother, to sever the relationship of financial dependence, emotional dependence, and to be joined with their spouse. And this leaving and cleaving is necessary, as much as necessary as a caterpillar that struggles daily in its cocoon in order to develop healthy wings that can fly. So Jesus defines that and reminds the Pharisees what God determined. That it requires marriage, differing genders, distinctly separate people coming together, being permanently united. And number three, being divinely ordained. He says it, not me. What God has joined together, let not man divorce. Same word. It's the same word that's being used there. What God therefore has joined together, let not man separate. This is God's plan. He's ordained marriage to reflect His glory. Not only is your salvation the eternal plan of God, but the marriage in which you reflect His eternal plan is also His eternal plan. And it is set apart to illustrate the larger redemptive work of Christ that He would carry out for the people, His church. So then we come to the same question that the people of Jesus' day asked. Verse 7, Well, they said to Him, Then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permits you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Again, words are important. What is the question that they ask? Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus says, without saying it specifically, he didn't command them, he allowed them. See, the Shammai wanted to say that it was a command, that it was a responsibility to give a certificate of divorce. And so when we read this passage in this way, that we have now in the church said, my wife or my husband has committed adultery and therefore I am required to divorce them. Let me ask you a question, church. Would it not give God glory if that marriage was reconciled? Would it not, with forgiveness and grace, as hard and as difficult as that might be, Pastor, you don't know what I've been through. You're right, I don't know what you've been through. But I know the testimony of reconciliation. I know the testimony of reconciliation and how that reflects what Jesus Christ did upon the cross by suffering and dying so that we could be free. I know what Ephesians 4, chapter chapter 4, verse 32 says, That if we've been forgiven, shouldn't we forgive? So, friend, you are not, under the exception clause in Jesus' words, commanded to divorce your spouse because of immorality. Although I know you will want to. It is painful. Trust is broken. It takes time and energy and longevity to overcome such a sin. But I would encourage you to try. 
I have, throughout my ministry, encouraged other people to try. And by God's grace, I have seen people resoundly struggle through such sin in their marriage and yet remain faithful. And God was gracious to grant reconciliation. So the first group thinking about this idea, the first idea was, well, you can divorce for any reason, which I think is even predominant in our church culture today. That was the the message of the Hillel. And then the second is, well, you can divorce. You can divorce, but, you know, you have to give a divorce. And I would say... If you can, even in the sense of sexual morality, seek permanence. Seek reconciliation because it gives a great picture of the glory of Christ. God will empower those who are committed to His Word and reconciliation. He will empower you. He will strengthen you. He can rebuild what was broken if you trust Him. John Stott said these words. He said, so speaking personally as a Christian pastor, whenever someone asks to speak to me about divorce, I have now for some, reason, for some years steadfastly refused to do so. I have made the rule never to speak with anyone about divorce until I first have spoken with him or her about two other subjects, namely marriage and reconciliation. So we get back to Paul's message. We get back to Jesus' message. We understand the keys of marriage as being a permanent union between two believers, both man and woman set out and created from the very beginning in Genesis to reflect the glory of God upon the earth. Not just your children reflecting God, but the marriage itself being a testimony to the nations, to the pagans that surrounded the Israelites and the church itself, to be a testimony of God's glory in your midst. The church is literally an assembly of those marriages So if you have a couple that is reflecting the glory of Christ in marriage, uniting in a church with another couple and another couple and another couple, then it's just a brighter glory reflection of the gospel and the glory of God in this dark world. The world wants you to give up on these desires. The world says it's not worth it. The world says you have feelings, you should seek those feelings. Jesus says that he wants you to fight for divorce or for marriage and flee divorce. He wants you to stand upon the way in which it was desired or designed. Paul says that you should seek the permanency of marriage and not divorce because reconciliation reflects who God is and what he's done in his son Jesus Christ. If you and your spouse follow the Lord Jesus, I will tell you in closing that there is not a tragedy or adversity that He doesn't know about and that He cannot empower you to overcome in your marriage. Do not lose hope in His power and His purposes to glorify His name through your adversity.
I was reading some quotes from two famous people that were married. One is not as famous as the other, be Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. Charles said about marriage, Happy woman and happy man. If heaven be found on earth, they have it. At last the two are so blended, so engrafted on one stem, that their old age presents a lovely attachment, a common sympathy by which its infirmities are greatly alleviated and its burdens are transformed into fresh bonds of love. So happy a union of will and sentiment and thought and heart exists between them that the two streams of life have washed away and the uh, washed away the dividing bank and they now run on as one broad current of united existence till their common joy falls into the ocean of eternal felicity. I'm very thankful for our church and the marriages that are represented here today. I'm thankful because you reflect Christ, not only to me as a younger married person, but you reflect Christ in your marriage to my children and to the other children in this community. And for that, I'm very thankful. And so I want to challenge you and encourage you to reflect upon these truths about marriage today and be joyful in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of truth that ground us to the reality of what marriage is meant to be. And in doing so, Father, no 